Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Dina Merriam. She is the founder and convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, bringing spiritual resources to address critical global challenges such as conflict, social justice, and ecological scarring of the earth. Dina received her master's degree from Columbia University in sacred literature. She has served on the boards of the Harvard Center for the Study of World Religions, the Interfaith Center of New York, the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, Manitou Foundation, All India Movement for Siva, the Gross National Happiness Center in Bhutan, and as an advisor to the board of Dharma Drum Mountain Buddhist Association. In 2014, Dina received the Niwano Peace Prize for her interfaith peace effort. Dina has been a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda and a practitioner of Riya Yoga Meditation for over 40 years. She is also a longtime student of the great texts of the Vedic tradition. Dina and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable spiritual journey and her latest book, The Untold Story of Sita, an empowering tale for our time. Good morning, Dina. Welcome back to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thank you. Good to be back. Fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. The last time you were here was last summer, and we talked about your powerful and compelling spiritual memoir, My Journey Through Time. And today I'm very excited to learn about the untold story of Cedar, which is another equally powerful and compelling read. Congratulations on its release. Thank you. Thank you so much. For the sake of our new listeners, let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. A quick walk through my life. Well, um, I've always had um, a, a spiritual side to my character from childhood, um, mm. it, but it really didn't develop. And then when I got into my teen years, I got involved in um, social issues, civil rights movement, and anti-war and then uh, as soon as I got to university, I began exploring um, uh, spiritual books. And it's there that I found the book of my, um, of my guru, Yogananda, uh, mm-hmm. Autobiography of a Yogi, and became a serious meditation practitioner. And devoted, you know, a long time uh, to, to, to meditation, regular meditation. And after, over the years began to have memories awaken of previous births, mm-hmm. which I've recounted in my book, uh, My Journey Through Time, uh, which goes back several lifetimes. Uh, but my interest was not really simply uh, in, in, in seeing the past. It was understanding um, a little bit more about my current life and the law of karma. What, why why uh, do our circumstances uh, happen the way they do? Why do we meet the people that we meet? So I had a lot of why questions. And mm-hmm. in seeing the past, I was under, able to understand a little bit huh, 
how the whole system works. <laughs> how everything that happens to us has an earlier cause um, yeah. that we may not see or know, but we can come to understand that there is an earlier cause and that we have to fulfill something that was set in motion uh, some time ago. So that, that's mm-hmm. been a, a, a continuing interest of mine to understand um, uh, more why things happen the way they do, both individually and collectively, because there's, mm-hmm. there's also collective karma. Uh, there's, there's, you know, family karma, there's national karma, and then there's global karma uh, that, you know, that we experience uh, as a species. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've tried to understand it on all levels. And so this, this, this uh, after I wrote my, my memoir, I really didn't expect to write any more books. I had gone mm-hmm. back in time several hundred years, and that was as far as I could see. And then uh, I was in India, and I took a pilgrimage to this uh, small temple town that has great significance in India called Ayodhya. And I found myself in the distant past uh, at a much, much earlier time. And so that was also a very um, uh, kind of enlightening experience for me to find myself in the distant Mm -hmm. past. Well, wonderful story. Beautiful, beautiful story. Coming back to when you were growing up, what was the main appeal of meditation for you? Well, I I felt, even as a young child, that I had lived Mm -hmm. before and that um, I, I, I wasn't just, I was more than just uh, this body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I searched in every which way. I tried many different, I mean, I read about many different religions. I always had an interest in, uh, um, you know, kind of um, what we might call myths, the Greek myths, the Egyptian. <laughs> uh, I, I, I read anything I could that would mm-hmm. give me some glimpse into a higher world. And um, I wasn't satisfied with just the material world that we live in. And so um, my journey really began quite early on as I I had a a very strong curiosity and uh, eagerness to learn. So I was an avid reader uh, growing up. And, you know, um, not so much of a social person, but much more of a a, uh, kind of had an inner life. Mm -hmm. I cultivated Mm -hmm. an inner life from early on. I didn't understand it so much, what what I was doing, uh, and I didn't have names for all the things I was experiencing. But as soon as I I read my guru's book, it kind of came together more clearly. Very, very interesting. Do you remember when you sort of truly recognized your depth of thoughts were different from others? I think in my 20s, when I really started meditating uh, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. It was a time when meditation was not accepted like it is today. It was viewed as a um, a kind of a very much of a, um, a, a cultish kind of thing. Right, yeah. And, and my family was very worried about it, and I had to kind of hide it from from <laughs> the, the workplace and from the family. And, and, and then I realized that I was living in two worlds. I had this inner world where I was really mm-hmm. happy. <laughs> And then I had the, the outer world where I had to kind of hide so much of myself. Of course, it's very, very different today. Uh, and now meditation is mainstream. And all right. the things that w- were considered odd to talk about, you can talk about openly today. You can talk about reincarnation and, and karma. Right, right. And a lot of the things that are just kind of now entered the mainstream. 
Um, mm-hmm. 30 years ago, they were considered, you know, 40 years ago when I started meditating, <laughs> it was very much out of the mainstream. Right, right. So true. When you were growing up, and obviously you're going through this process, and you realize that you were slightly different in terms of your thought process mm-hmm. and so forth, why was it so important for you to find peace? I, I think there's a... Um, it's, there's a natural urge in the, in the you know the spirit to mm-hmm. to want to know itself, mm-hmm. and it comes out in different ways. And I think the more um, one experiences, the more that aspect of wanting to know itself comes out. And peace is is part of one of the qualities of of the soul of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Peace and 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 this you know blissful feeling of of love. So those are the qualities that we keep seeking. And we search for them in the world, you know, and, you know, that's why people are running after pleasures. They're, they're mistaking pleasures for that higher quality of love and, and peace. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's a natural urge. And I, you know, I felt it most intently, I guess, once I started meditating. Um, earlier, I think it was just, you know, my soul came, I, I was born with, with a certain kind of veiled memories mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I had fleeting memories even in childhood um, in my first book I talk about you know my love for ballet in my previous birth mm-hmm. and in my childhood that remained I used to dance in my dreams even though I couldn't do any of that in my body at night I could do it <laughs> when I was dreaming <laughs> and so I think I think that's not uncommon although we normally don't know, don't know how to explain it so you just don't think about right. it Right. But I think children, children uh, for at least the first six, seven years of their life, display many qualities of their previous birth. And so I, I had a lot, I had those experiences, but I kind of took note of them. I, I said, hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't just, I just kind of took note of them. And so it was, it was just very natural for, for me from an early age to say, oh yeah, I, I lived before, you know, <laughs> <laughs> not my first time around. Well, you brought something up very interesting, though, because if you let a child do his or her thing, and what you're saying is that when looking at that, quite possibly those sort of natural talent were actually uh, droplets of past life capabilities. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've seen it with my children, and and Mm -hmm. I have young grandchildren now, and I've seen it with them. Um, You have to just – you have to be observant. You have to just take note of these things. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 beautiful to see, uh, um, and you can see how there are certain passions that will be with the, that will be with a child from early on, and then at some point they just dissipate. It's like okay, that's right. done. Right. That's right. not for this life. That's just a carryover. Right. And you, right. And you very, can see new interests developed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. As you were explaining that, I'm looking at it's like, what is that animal that shed its skin? Well, snakes does that. And I think snakes, a few other yeah. animals, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Certainly so, do that. Yeah. So that's that's truly amazing. So did your family embrace your spiritual perspective? I know you touched on it a little bit, but uh, did they truly embrace your spiritual perspective? Not at all. <laughs> they, <laughs> they they didn't because it also was an Eastern tra- tradition, which was mm-hmm. uh, felt to be foreign, um, mm-hmm. and they they didn't understand it. And so I ended up just not keeping it separate. And so I, I I it was actually unfortunate to have to do that. I 
I think it's it's great that people don't have to do that so much today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe in some situations, yes, but not so much. I mean, even now in my workplace, we have yeah. teachers come in to lead meditation sessions at work. So, right. Um, right. You, you know, and it's and it's. Um, Tell you all kinds of articles, you know. It's good for your heart. It's good for you know all kind of medical right. uh, uh, right. uh, um, ad, ad, advocates for meditation. So, so I think. It, but at that time, um, I had to really learn to keep my spiritual life separate from my family and separate from work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was something that I struggled with because you know one one doesn't want to have to kind of watch oneself. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but. Interestingly enough, I think also when you talk about a lifetime span, certain things that we encounter when you look back, those certain things are more compartmentalized to generational issues, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I I, I mean, I think each generation has its particular struggle. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and and that's something that's just kind of – not a factor anymore. I mean, young people have other right. issues they have to deal with. And the big one is, you know, technology and, and the the ill uses of technology and what they're exposed to. I mean, I think that's something that this generation has to face that we, we just, you know, didn't exist with mm-hmm. when I was young. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't an issue. Uh, but there was a growing, you know, all of my friends were involved in some uh, Eastern path. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm they were either kind of like kind of shut out by their family or did what I did and just kind of had to manage these two worlds. <laughs> and, 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 and there, so there was definitely a growing interest for, for, um, for, for the experiential side of, of, of religion, you know, not mm-hmm. doctrine, but, you know, right. I want to experience it. I want to find out. I want to know. I want personal experience. Right, and I think right. that's what led people uh, to to, uh, to the East uh, initially at, at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, now there's so many, so much available uh, in terms of techniques and practices from all traditions that you you can get it from anywhere. Right, so true. Well, I feel like also the generational movement was led by curiosity, educating us and others and the world that was slowly yes. transforming within society in itself. I think there was also a certain, once we've reached a certain level of affluence in this country, mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. that, that that's not enough. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very nice, but it doesn't really satisfy the soul. It doesn't satisfy the deeper yearnings. Right. Um, right. Right. And so I think that that was emerging um, at that time. So, so, I mean, I think that's a consistent theme when mm-hmm. a society reaches a certain level. So true. Yeah. Very, very true. What life experiences led you to the formation of the Global Peace Initiative of Women? Well, it was really quite by accident. Um, I had never intended uh, – I was, I was working as a, a writer mm-hmm. in my father's uh, PR company. He had a publishing division that I was overseeing. And um, the opportunity came to him, really, to help organize this big religious summit um, at the UN. Mm-hmm. And um, he kind of put me in the front and said, you know, this is your interest. Here's, he was always the one of the family most sympathetic to my spiritual interest. He said, here's your interest. You go take it and run with it. 
And so I had the opportunity to, to travel around the world, meeting all these religious leaders, inviting them to come to the UN. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was a big deal. It had never happened before. So they were all very, very eager to come. And in the process, I noticed that there were very few women uh, uh, mm-hmm. spiritual teachers. Mm-hmm. And so I really began to look because the UN kept saying, you know, make sure there's gender equity. You know, this is the UN. We have right, women right. and men. We couldn't find the women. And so the first mm-hmm. summit took place, and, and the few women that were there were, were unhappy and said, look, we've got to do a better job at this. We should do a follow-up summit and really, really seek out the women. And so we did, um, and uh, that was the Global Peace Initiative of Women, Religious, and Spiritual Leaders. And mm-hmm. from that, we, we got invited to go to conflict areas and try to hold peace dialogues. So the name got shortened to just the Global Peace Initiative of Women, but that that really is only um, the way it started. I mean, as we've evolved, I mean, we we have complete gender balance. You know, there are not mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. as many men who lead the organization, and and uh, our dialogues are really not in conflict areas anymore. We're focusing a lot on climate change now, and mm-hmm. so that was kind of the way we began. And I had never intended to do more than organize one summit at the UN. But one thing led to another, and the next thing I know, I founded an organization. <laughs> and the next thing I know, we were working all over the world. <laughs> so it, it, it was nothing I intended to do. But right. my, as, I was, as I was able to see more of my past, I saw that it was a logical next step to a lot mm-hmm. of the work that I had been doing in previous <laughs> births. When you look back at it, it seems like it's just sort of a ripple effect. Yeah, and I think a lot of life unfolds that way, that mm-hmm. we suddenly we have an opportunity, and you know if you you know if you're able to see the, the benefit of that opportunity and take it, something else will come from that, and then something else comes from that. And before you know it, you know you're at a place that you never kind of dreamed uh, you'd be at. And I, and I I think many people kind of find themselves in a spot that they, and that's all due to past causes. I mean, nothing mm-hmm. happens arbitrarily. It's all due to past causes. But we're not right. conscious of those causes. I mean, somewhere in our subconscious, we know. But, you know, mm-hmm. we, can't, we, we can't keep track of everything in our conscious mind. And so it kind of slips into the unconscious. But that unconscious guides us. And it's like, okay, yeah, here's an opportunity that will help you fulfill that, that desire you had long ago. Um, and so we're guided by our, by our inner um, by our inner knowing, really. That's true. Very, very true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Dina Merriam. She is the founder and convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women bringing spiritual resources to address critical global challenges such as conflict, social justice, and ecological scarring of the earth. For over 40 years, Dina has been a devotee of Paramahansha Yogananda and the practice of Riya Yoga Meditation. She is also a longtime student of the great texts of the Vedic tradition. We're having a conversation about her remarkable spiritual journey and her latest book, The Untold Story of Sita. An empowering tale for our time. Dina, how did the Untold Story of Sita project come about? 
Well, so let me just preface this by saying that mm-hmm. one of the foundational stories of Indian civilization is the story of Ram and Sita, who mm-hmm. were historical figures. He was a king, she was his wife, who lived thousands of years B.C. But they together really set the foundation for what was to become India, India, uh, Indic civilization. Um, they also are considered to be um, divine beings, you know, th- th- who came down to help uh, achieve a certain mission, help establish the early foundation for civilization. Mm-hmm. But they came at a time um, when humanity was transitioning uh, into an agricultural civilization. So we've had several major leaps in our evolution. One was mm-hmm. uh, 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 moving from a kind of more of a hunter-gatherer society into an agricultural mm-hmm. one, and then thousands of years later moving from that into an industrial civilization, and then and now moving into a post-industrial technological civilization. So we're we're at a crossroad. And so when I was traveling in India to the place where, where they lived, I began to have some insights into what life was like at that time. And I thought mm-hmm. it relevant to today because um, it's always good to look at times of transition. When you're moving from one uh, 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 um, kind of way, you know, set of circumstances that defined a society into something that's radically different. Right. And since we stand at the threshold of moving into a, a radically different age, um, you know, if we're reborn in a hundred years, we might not recognize the things we see. Just like someone born, to, you know, from 200 years ago, when they see, you know, computers and airplanes, cars, they would think, "My God, what world is this?" Right. But it was right. similar. It was similar during during uh, Ram and Sita's time, uh, and so and so I began a, kind of a deep reflection and meditation, um, trying to understand. Their, the narrative about them in a new way, because the traditional narrative that's come down, which is one of the foundational stories of India, has many kind of patriarchal overlays. For example, Sita plays a minor role compared to Ram. And and um, there are many things that happen to her where she's kind of looked at as the victim. She's kidnapped, he saves mm-hmm. her, things like that. And so I wanted to understand really, um, uh, my sense was that this was a pre-patriarchal time. And so what did that pre-patriarchal time look like? Uh, and and this has kind of led my inquiry into into looking more deeply into that era. Very, very interesting. And why did you decide to write the book? Well, the book decided to write itself. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I started seeing scenes and um, a whole story unfolded and it was clear that the story needed to be written. And so I just made myself really a vehicle right. through which through which this story could be told. Um and it it it, it, it adheres to many of the key um key events in their life, but told through Sita's eyes instead of uh really through the male character Ram's eyes. And as you dig deeper, you could see that in this pre-patriarchal period, there were many, many uh, women sages. This was also a time when uh, the first educational institutes were being set up 
to preserve the spiritual teachings. And there were many women teachers and women sages, and women had freedom of movement, and um, women had had um, uh, were also uh, writers of some of the great texts. And so it, it really, so much of that has been lost and forgotten. And mm-hmm. I felt that now, as we're moving again into a, an age of greater gender balance, it's very important to remember that that time existed in the distant past, and we can um, learn from that time if we can kind of go back, you know, into the pre-patriarchal period. We can learn what 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 was achieved when there was uh, much greater gender balance. Very very interesting. Now, is that the main difference between the untold story of Sita versus the traditional Ramayana? Well, in, in the untold story of Sita, I have Sita in control of her destiny. So mm-hmm. instead of her being kidnapped and being the victim of a kidnapping um, by this, this um, great and evil force mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. who's causing such um, disarray in that part of the world, I see her as having engineered that so that Ram has a, a, a viable excuse to go invade and to conquer him. It, there were, there were uh, rules, laws of war at that time. You couldn't just mm-hmm. go invade a country. There had right. to be uh, a serious reason. front right. reason. Right. And so yeah. her kidnapping allowed the reason. But I, didn't, but I show her to be the, the designer <laughs> of the story rather than yeah. the victim. Yeah, right, right. And then, and then, after he, she's after the war is won and she returns, they go back, go back to Ayodhya, to where they lived, uh, and they had been away for 14 years, wandering in the in the jungles. And the way the traditional story is, the people rise up and say she's got to be banished because she's lived for a year in mm-hmm. uh, this uh, evil man's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, the scholars agree that that was a later addition. So my question was why? Why did that uh, why did that addition uh, get added to the story and it's so deep in the collective mind of the people that they sing the blues of Sita for having been abandoned by her beloved husband. So I I completely discount that part of the story as many others do. Um <laughs> and and say that, you know, there's another reason for Sita's retreat into the forest. I mean, one of the things that is so relevant to our time is that this story took place before humanity had separated ourselves from the rest of nature. Mm-hmm. So there was still this unity with the natural world and this interdependence and this knowledge of the of the forest and the plant life and the animal life. And we were part of the whole. But it was happening at a time when man was beginning to gain control over the natural world with the development of agriculture and the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, moving away from the forest life and the sense that we were separate and superior. And that continued to develop over the centuries and millennia until we arrive at this point where we've nearly destroyed nature and not knowing that we'll destroy ourselves if we destroy nature because we're part of nature. So for me, Sita indicated, I mean, she was like the, 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 the mother of the natural world, the earth mother. Mm-hmm. And she, she, um, her message is we cannot survive if we see ourselves as separate from nature. We, we can't survive. 
And mm-hmm. so we have to integrate again uh, and develop and, and awaken in ourselves this love for the natural world and a sense of caretaking for the natural world. That was the main, one of the main themes of the story. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, by, by peering into her life, we can see how integrated humanity once was with the natural world. There were so many medicinal plants. For any right. uh, illness that took, that happened, there was a, there was a, a treatment for it in the natural world, and Sita knew all those treatments because she lived in the forest for so many years, and and they they lived on just the plant life when she and Ram were um, traveling through the forest. They they lived on just the, what with the forest made available. So this is a very important message now, as we have to evolve into a more ecological uh, mm-hmm. civilization. Uh, if we are to survive the current climate and uh, crisis. No doubt humanity was more integrated back then during Sita's time. So what actually happened to change that result all the way to what we have right now? Well, with with the, the transition into an agricultural society, uh, mm-hmm. we were able to support a, support a larger human population. And right. so... Uh, so humanity grew in numbers. Uh, there was much more migration of people. Uh, trade was developed. Industries were developed. At first, just you know, uh, uh, industries not uh, not uh, the industry that we know today. But there right, was some right. mining. There was gold. There was silver. There was jewelry making. There was clothing. So there, so industries developed, and um, we began to live. Apart from the natural world, we had our own cities. The cities didn't look like what they are today, but comparatively speaking, they were cities. And, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, modes of transportation, chariots. Uh, And so so we were were living less in touch with the natural world. And, of course, this kept developing, kept developing, kept developing. And the human community kept uh, expanding. Um, uh, be, because of the agricultural revolution, uh, we were able to keep growing, you know, having more children mm-hmm. that survived. Mm-hmm. And this set a trend that just continued and continued. I mean, when I think about how many people, I don't know the answer to this, would have, how, what the human population would have been during Sita's time, which there's no exact date, but some people say right. five to 7,000 years ago. So it could have been 5,000 B.C. Right. There probably were maybe a few hundred million people on the planet. Right, right. You know, all over the planet. Now you can compare that to over seven billion. Right. So, right. Um, so this was a trend that that uh, kept keep going, and and for a while it it didn't grow so exponentially. You know, it's only in the last few hundred years, uh, with the de- development of technology, that we were really able to go from maybe a few billion to, to what we are today. Very interesting. As you can tell, at the same time, if we are connected with nature, then we're living in a closed system. You can't create order here without creating disorder somewhere else. So we are interconnected from that perspective. Having said that, nature has its own way of purging things. Do you feel that the process that we went through during Cetus time to now in some ways, that's happening, and we don't even realize it. Well, I think it is. I think that that we're going to either voluntarily or be forced 
to 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 um, develop a more. I mean, otherwise nature is going to be destroyed. The forests are being, you know, right. cut. I mean, the, the, I mean, this has happened at times, you know, way 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 in the distant past when there have been mass extinctions. I don't know how many millions of years ago was the last right, mass extinction, right. but we're experiencing a time now when many species are going extinct. So this mm-hmm. is like we've reached mm-hmm. the point. In the past, extinctions were not caused by humanity because we were not developed enough to have enough control. Uh, they were caused by violent uh, uh, volcanoes uh, or, or uh, um, a comet that struck us. You know, an, an right. external force that that changed the the chemical na- con- uh, composition of either the right. oceans or the the air, and that caused a lot of, of animals to die off. But but now we're creating it, so we're doing it. So we have some res- so we have responsibility for that. That's a, a different thing. That right. We have this responsibility now. So right. I I see among young people. I do a lot of uh, dialogues, gatherings mm-hmm. with young ecologists, and so many of them. They feel what's happening to the earth much more intensely than the older generations because mm-hmm. this is their future. You know, people in their twenties, even thirties, you know, they 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 want to have a future. They want to be able to live good lives like we have. You know, mm-hmm. thirty, forty years down the road, they they, they don't want to see everything <laughs> collapse. And right. So right. They get this much more than those who are ensconced on the structures that now exist. When you think about people who live in the cities, a lot of people never get out of the city. Of course, That's if you're correct. wealthy and you have a jet and you can fly to an island somewhere that you own, it's a different matter. But right. for most people, they only know concrete. They don't know what it's like to, to, to walk on the, the, the earth, to feel the energy of the earth. And, and so, you know, this, this creates a lot of imbalances, both physical and emotional imbalances. And you add to that all the toxins that we put into the, uh, into the environment. And right. that also is creating so many imbalances. So, so this whole, this whole um, situation that we've set up for ourselves is, is an unsustainable one. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I think if you, I mean, young people have, if once they have the power, when they have the power, uh, to be able to um, to make the changes that are needed, mm-hmm. a lot of them are interested in growing their own food, you know, mm-hmm. in in starting small organic gardens. We did a project in New York City, in New York City, with young um, organic farmers, urban farmers, and any plot of land they could find, you know, even mm-hmm. a little uh, backyard of a um, of an apartment. They were trying to just to connect to the earth. It was really about connecting to the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. The book is written in the first person. Is it because of the past life recall for you? Well, my, my experience as I as I uh, recorded what what I saw um, mm-hmm. was that I, I had lived as a servant in the household of Sita. Mm-hmm. And when I when I, I really questioned myself, I said, you know, Dina, could this be real? Yeah. And then I, I, I said to myself, well, maybe I'm channeling that servant, you know. Right, maybe right. I was channeling somebody because it really was almost like a channeling experience. And then I said to myself, it doesn't really matter. How could I ever know? It doesn't matter. Either either I was that servant or I was, I was channeling that servant. 
but <laughs> the 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 experience which was such a powerful one and such a beautiful one because I found myself in the presence of Sita, um, mm-hmm. who is this divine figure, full of love and compassion for everything for all of the natural world, for the plant life, for the animal life, for the servants in the household. And then I saw that at that time there was very little distinction between the royalty and the servants. I mean, everyone was doing their job. (laughs) Everybody was loved and respected. It wasn't like the divisions that evolved over time where people were so uh, um, kind of stuck in a a system that became very rigid. And so I I just – I don't know the answer, whether it, it mm-hmm. felt like a past life recall, but I don't know that that was actually what it was. How can you distinguish, though, a past life recall from an imagination? Well, what is imagination? I think imagination <laughs> draws upon a lot of our past life experiences right? Um, and our experiences between lives. Um, imagination is not coming from nowhere. The unconscious mind, just like dreams, don't come from nowhere. We put together material that are, that that within from within us uh, that, that may not make sense, but there are threads that are coming up. But in my first book, the experiences that I recount in there, mm-hmm. um, I was able to check some of them out. I actually took trips to certain places that I had seen and found the places that I had seen. Um, and so I was, I was functioning almost like a detective, saying, "Oh, could this be real, or, or am I going a little nuts?" <laughs> yeah, I did that yeah. with my first book, and and um, every life that I saw, I could see a part of myself in that life. And a friend of mine who read the book said to me, "I, I, I recognize you in each birth." And mm-hmm. so, to me, I really didn't question whether those were past life recall. Um, I I questioned this one uh, because I thought to myself, I mean, to say that I was a servant in Sita's household, I mean, could that have been true, you know, and and to go so far back in time. But, you know, nothing is lost. All the memories, all the, everything that we've ever experienced is hidden within us. It's just a matter of, um, and it would be a complete distraction if it were all to merge at once. Mm-hmm. So things mm-hmm. emerge when there's a reason, when there's a, a teaching, when there's the, I feel that things emerge for me so that I could share these narratives with other people so that they could begin to examine themselves a little bit more deeply. That's true. Very true. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Dana Merriam. She's the founder and convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, bringing spiritual resources to address critical global challenges such as conflict, social justice, and ecological scarring of the earth. For over 40 years, Dina has been a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda and a practitioner of Riya Yoga Meditation. She is also a longtime student of the great text of the Vedic tradition. We're having a conversation about her remarkable spiritual journey and her latest book, The Untold Story of Sita, an empowering tale for our time. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dina, can you explain to us the yuga theory of history? So in the, in the West, we see history as linear. 
um, we see um, human development is coming from a more primitive to a less primitive to slightly more developed until we get to where we are today, to a growing complexity of life. And that's certainly true. We, we, have, we, we, we have historical evidence of that. Um, but we don't go far back in time. Uh, uh, anything earlier than about 3000 BC mm-hmm. is considered prehistory. We, we have evidence of, of um, things that we can't explain like Stonehenge, which is mm-hmm. you know, way earlier than that. How, how possibly could, could those huge boulders have been placed in the position that we were with such exactitude? We don't know the answer to that. And there are many such sites around the uh, globe that raise questions. And then, of course, you have the legends of Atlantis and Lemuria, legends of higher civilizations that just completely disappeared. Um, and and the, we all in every religion, there's the story of a great flood that came, which probably coincided with the end of the, the, the melting of the ice during the end of the last ice age, mm-hmm. um, in which mm-hmm. the oceans rose 400 feet and probably destroyed a lot of evidence of earlier civilizations. So in the, in the Eastern world view of history, uh, it's cyclical. And um, there are times of, of higher civilizations and then decline, and then moving toward a higher and then a decline. Um, but it's also linear. So each higher civilization is different than the previous one with, with different technologies and different uh, different. Um, uh, lifestyle of uh, ways of living, mm-hmm. um, and so the time of uh, when Sita lived, it was considered to be a declining period from a higher yuga moving into a lower yuga. The the, the yuga cycles really have to do with the spiritual development of humanity, less with the mm-hmm. material development. So when when Western uh, um, anthropologists say that we lived in caves. The Easterners may have said, "Oh, yeah, but well, we were yogis in caves who were who were seeing the deities, <laughs> you know, yeah. because the spiritual yeah, yeah, yeah. site was opened. They didn't need to focus much on the material world. The food was plentiful from the forest, so they just picked and ate what they could, and they spent their time communing with the deities. So it's a different way of looking at history, more from the spiritual uh, um, insights, uh, and and there's a there are astrological astronomical, astronomical uh, phenomenon that oversee these cycles. As right, we, right. In, our, in our movement through the galaxy, as we get closer to the center of the galaxy, supposedly our spiritual um, insights are more advanced, and as we move away from that magnetic force at the center, uh, we, uh, we become more materialistic. Now, we live in a very materialistic age now, Mm-hmm. Uh, and have been for some time, where we don't see spiritual realms. Uh, and all religions have stories of earlier times when the Garden of Adam and Eve is an example, mm-hmm. um, when we could see the angels. So mm-hmm. in the East we say you could see the, dev- the, the devas, but we don't see them anymore. <laughs> we see only the gross material world. Um, so while many people think that we're at the most advanced stage, others would say, well, it's actually, we're not so advanced. Spiritually, it's it's we really live in a, in a very materialistic time. That's true, very true. However, don't you think that there's a cycle going through now in the sense that talking about the meditation, for example, 
now it's like, wow, it's mainstream. So isn't there a shift spiritually yes, on and, a global perspective? Yes, and, and according to the, the Eastern view, we've, we've now moved into a, a higher age. We're out of the Kali Yuga, which is the most materialistic uh, age, um, and we've moved out of that. And we're beginning to develop uh, understanding of subtle energies uh, and a, a lot of advances. It seems things are moving quickly now. Uh, mm-hmm. And the awakening, the spiritual awakening that's going on, where people have access to meditation practices where they didn't have access. Uh, you know, a lot of these practices were hidden, hidden right. in monasteries and in mountain caves, and now it's out in the in the on the internet. So <laughs> anybody can find the practices uh, that you need, right. Right. And, and people are recognizing that that the material lifestyle is not enough to satisfy the deeper um, the deeper yearning of of one's uh, self. That's true. Very true. What are the main messages from the untold story of Sita? I think the main messages, the main, the two that I'll focus on, one is the ecological message, is that we have to come into balance. The, 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 if you look at that time when she lived, she lived during a time when there was gender balance and ecological balance, but it was shifting. They were moving into a, into a lower age where materialism was taking hold, individualism was taking hold, and they were losing that balance. Now we're kind of in the upward cycle, and we have to regain the balance. We have to regain ecological balance. We have to regain gender balance, and they're linked. How we treat the earth and how how we treat uh, you know women in our society are linked. It's the feminine principle. And so creating more balance between the – and by, by bringing the feminine principle more into balance, we elevate the higher aspects of the masculine principle. So it's this balance between the higher masculine and feminine principles as it manifests in, in, in gender relations and how it manifests in the ecological world. I think that's the main message. And by reading this book, you can, you can glimpse a time when, when those things were in balance, but there was a, a loss that was soon to take place, and Sita knew this. And was trying to was trying to really uh, uh, embed in the human psyche this love for nature, uh, and embed in the men the honoring of the of the female principle. And now we have to regain that in our society if we are to move out of this crisis that we face, which is manifesting, you know, in so many ways: ecological, economic, um, sense of justice, you know, all the inequalities. Um, you know, they're all linked together, and they all come from this this imbalance that we have created through ignorance. And so we have to um, awaken, and meditation is part of that process of awakening so that we will know how to restore the balance. So true. You mentioned earlier, which was very interesting, because you talk about as city grows, the irony of it is you have concrete jungles. And during Sita's time, we're talking about truly nature or natural foliage or jungle or whatever you want to call it, right, which is beauty in itself. And so we have to make a conscious decision from our awareness that we have to step out of the concrete jungle and just enjoy nature as it is. Of course, people that live out in the country realizes that, especially in the United States right here where we have so many big cities that we need to sort of 
get out of that setting and just enjoy what nature has to give us. Well, to I mean, we we so many of us see so few animals. Right. Now, aside from dogs and cats, if you have a pet, uh, <laughs> what what animal you might you might see a pigeon in the city. But you, you don't. We don't live with animals. And I, I also have a house out of. I live in the city, but I have a house out of the city, which mm-hmm. is my main home, and that's my retreat because I, I love to be surrounded by animals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, rabbits and squirrels and and wood and woodchucks and um, all kinds of. They're, they're a nuisance uh, because <laughs> they they eat the food, but but they're also adorable. And so right. to be able right. to 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 see the plentitude of life and the creativity, the divine creativity that has created so many different forms of life Precisely. Um, and frogs and all those things. And um, somebody in, in my area just uh, posted a, a notice that she's seeing very few uh, bees and insects this year. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm actually on the lookout because there has been a decline in the bee population. No doubt about that. Every time I see a, a, a bee, I say, well, thank God, I see a bee. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> everything affects everything else. If there are fewer insects, what will the birds and the frogs eat? And who's going to pollinate the plants and, and the flowers, you know? Everything affects everything else. And so we have to become more conscious of that. It's very hard to become conscious of that if you don't live in it. You're right, because what happens now is that let's clarify the definition of animals. It's true, your pet, dog, and cat are animals, but we're talking different kind of animals here that you can truly see its independence. You it's got a, a whole life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, it has a whole different effect when, when you, um, um, yes, when you, when, you, when you live with, you know, rabbits running across the way and, you mm-hmm. know, all kinds mm-hmm. of other things. And it's, it just makes you feel, you feel a kinship. You feel protective of these animals and, and, yeah. and to care for them, and, and it awakens that love energy. And and I think that's what humanity needs most desperately now is to awaken that love energy. That's one of the messages of the Sita book. Um, her, her very being was the epitome of love. Uh, even even as they, they had to kill this this um, uh, vicious uh, man who was dominating the region, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was they, they did it with, with in a spirit of love to to free all the beings uh, who were being oppressed by him and so and so to, we have to come back to the place of love and the natural world helps us do that um, right you know you know you feel so peaceful when you're in nature it's, there's a healing energy that humanity desperately needs and and um, and even if you live in a rural community it doesn't mean that you, you're feeling that healing energy being in a forest. A lot of the rural communities today are farm communities, big corporate farms. Few of us live close to a really natural habitat. Um, You know, that's just the way it's evolved. And so we have to make an effort to do that uh, and and to understand the the healing power that comes from that. But also I want to end really on this note of of the most (laughs) important message of the book is love. And, right and how we need to awaken that in ourselves again. Mm-hmm. So true. When we talk about love thy neighbor here, we're not talking a human being alone, because now that rabbit, that wild rabbit family, is thy neighbor itself. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very very true. Yeah. What would you like 
for the readers to gain from reading the untold story of Sita? Well, the untold, it really is an empowering tale, I think, for our time. I think there are many, many messages that one comes to experience um, this divine being, Sita, and feel mm-hmm. her love uh, and and feel the the all that she was trying to imbue in humanity as she saw that it was entering a period of spiritual loss, of disconnection from nature. Um, her love for the rivers, you know, how how often do mm-hmm. we sit by a river and say, "That's who you truly love that river." Um, you know, are almost all the rivers on the planet are now so polluted. I mean, think about that. Um, right. When I was growing up, you could drink from a river. There was no concept of bottled water. There's hardly a river that you can drink from today, maybe not even one left on the planet. And that's in a very brief time. And so and so, we can't undo what's been done, but we can turn into a different, in a different direction. And I think the only way for us to do that is to really awaken this love for the natural world. And I think that's a message that comes through very, very strongly in the book in a very, in a very gentle way. Um, uh, it's not didactic, but you see, you see the beauty of Sita's relationship with the rivers and with the forest mm-hmm. and with the animal life. And, um, and it was a beautiful way of living. It was a beautiful way of living. And, and despite all the luxuries that we have today, I don't think it equates with, that, with, with the beauty of that way of living. Uh, you know, so we have you know, more possessions and more things that we, we can't get rid of, you know, because where are we going to put them? The oceans are full of trash. You know, we, have, <laughs> we, we have so many things that we live with today, then, and, and what use, really, do they bring us happiness? So I, right. think, I think the book will, will help really um, foster a deep reflection on, on how we get from here to there. Right. So true. I'm glad you brought up the fact that the ocean is filled with trash. My personal experience of it is very interesting because I live right by White Rock Lake. It's a beautiful lake here in Dallas. It was last summer, I believe, that we experienced one of those flash floods, like just rain mm-hmm. keep on pouring because of climate change and whatnot. What's interesting about it is that, of course, when you go around the lake and you enjoy walking around it and biking around it and so forth, they are trash, but you really don't see it, right? When this flash flood occurred, it's like the lake, and this is, again, I believe, like that Mother Nature took care of its own self. The lake sort of like vomited all this trash out because it flooded, huh? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And then when the water recedes, guess what? All that stuff is stuck on the pathway, <laughs> and you have to clean yeah, it up. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing happening with the oceans. On even some South yeah. Pacific islands, there's all this trash that's washing up on the shore to make yeah. itself visible. To say, look, that's hey. right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's really funny when you walk, and it's like, okay, you don't. Think about it. Let me show it right in front of your face because you can't yeah. walk now. You have yeah. to clean the trash. <laughs> I mean, you know, so many of us when our when our plastics was recycled, we didn't know, we didn't even think to ask where it's going. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> right. We're <Right>. recycling. <laughs> you know, <laughs> being good citizens, recycling. Now we find out it's it's in the ocean. That's right. That's right. So true. Where can someone go to buy your books, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, my books are on Amazon. That's that's where we all buy books today. Uh, there's My Journey Through Time, A Spiritual Memoir of Life, Death, and Rebirth. And then the recent book, um, 
the untold story of Sita, an empowering tale for our time. And you can find out more about me uh, um, on the Global Peace Initiative of, of Women website. That's www.gpiw.org. Again, gpiw.org. And we're on Facebook uh, and Twitter as well. Wonderful. What is next for you? Well, next we have a global meeting of young ecologists from around the world to talk about the climate crisis and to talk about awakening this love for the earth. And that will take place in the fall. <laughs> Wonderful. So, when will that happen? Uh, in November in, uh, in Bangkok, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Thailand. We've been doing these dialogues with young ecologists around the world, and now we're bringing them all together to share expertise and, and it's it's they're a great group, so we're very excited about that. We bring spiritual teachers to help talk about the spiritual dimensions of the ecological crisis. All that will Do be you, on our website. Wonderful. Do you think the world is ready for feminine wisdom and leadership? I think the world needs it. We'll have to be ready. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. As we close the show, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yes. Go barefoot and walk on the earth and just take a few minutes and talk to the earth. Go someplace in the natural world, a forest or just or just a spot of grass, and just really feel the energy of the earth and try to have a deep exchange. Feel the love from the earth and give love to the earth. And I think you'll you'll feel the healing energy. I think that's what humanity needs most, most desperately now, is to reconnect with our Mother Earth. Fantastic. That's beautiful. Dana, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in three weeks, Tuesday morning, August 6th. My guests will be Sandra and Daniel Biskin. These international best-selling authors, speakers, trainers, and healers have finally committed their full decoding process to paper in their new book, Codebreaker, Discover the Password to Unlock the Best Version of You, and its perfect companion, the Codebreaker Journal. Sandra, Daniel, and I will be having a conversation about their spiritual journey and how you can recode all blocks that are holding you back from experiencing your optimum life right now. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dina, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with me and have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.